The book of Acts is the second in a two-volume set written by Luke. The first volume is the gospel according to Luke. And the second volume, the book of Acts, starts out by Luke saying, The former account, which is the gospel of Luke, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So, Volume 1 is the Gospel according to Luke, which, which uh, gives to us the life and ministry of Christ on the earth. Volume 2 picks up where that first volume leaves off, and it continues the work that Jesus began to do on the earth through his ministry as he continues to work through his church, through the power of his Holy Spirit. So it's a continuation. Now, Luke was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And the only Gentile whose writings have made it into the New Testament, we also learn from Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, that he was a doctor. And historians and scholars that have studied this period of time tell us that it was not uncommon for a wealthy man to have a slave that was his personal physician. I guess back then it wasn't uh, an uncommon thing for, uh, for a slave to be a physician and to serve a master the scholars believe that Luke was in fact a slave and that the man he wrote these two volumes to, a man by the name of Theophilus, was his master at one time. And scholars believe that Theophilus got saved and he released Luke to accompany Paul on his missionary journeys, seeing that Paul had some physical problems, some medical issues. And to have his, his own personal physician by his side while he traveled around ministering and establishing church, that would have been a great benefit for Paul. Theophilus recognized that, so he released Luke to follow Paul around on his missionary journeys. People who have studied history and read Luke's historical record here in the book of Acts have unanimously said that Luke is one of the greatest historians that has ever lived. And he has given us an extremely accurate and reliable historical record of the early church, as well as providing for us an invaluable bridge which spans and connects the Gospels to the Epistles. I mean, think about what our New Testament would be without the book of Acts. You pick your Bible up, you finish with John's Gospel, and then you turn to the next book and you're reading about some guy named Paul writing to believers in Rome. And you're thinking, wait a minute, who's this guy Paul? And how did the gospel get from Jerusalem to Rome? Well, Acts answers those questions. Now, the key verse in the book is chapter 1, verse 8, which says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. But the book of Acts kind of divides itself around that outline. Chapters 1 through 7 deal with the Holy Spirit working through the apostles in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 deal with the Holy Spirit working through the apostles in Judea and Samaria. And the rest of the book deals with the work of the Spirit through the apostles unto the ends of the known world. I say the apostles actually... Chapters 1 through 12 deal pretty much with the ministry of Peter. And chapters 13 through 28 deal pretty much with the ministry of Paul. Maybe they should have called it the Acts of Peter and Paul, but they didn't. And so, But that's the general outline. Okay, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
in the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, scholars are not in agreement as to when Luke wrote uh, the book of Acts. But because of the way it so abruptly ends in chapter 28 with Luke waiting to go on trial in Rome, which took place in 62 AD, many people believe that the book was written prior to AD 62. Because if it wasn't, why didn't Luke tell us what happened in Paul's trial, what the outcome was? And, and also, if the book was written later, as a lot of scholars think it was, sometime between 70 and 85 AD, well then why didn't Luke include in the book of Acts the persecution under Nero in AD 64, Paul's death in AD 68, and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70? I mean, as a historian, he just could not, I'm sure, keep his hands off of those events. He would have had to have recorded them, which says to me the book was finished sometime prior to AD 62. And I feel this way. I feel that Luke wrote everything he could up to his present day. I think he fully intended to, to include what happened with Paul's trial when he stood uh, before Caesar and anything else that would have happened during his lifetime as long as Luke was, was still alive. But something happened where he never got the opportunity to finish his history. That's why it kind of ends so abruptly. I think he intended to continue on with it. He intended. I think the Holy Spirit intended something different. I think the Holy Spirit purposely did not provide a proper ending to the book of Acts. You know why? Because the book of Acts is an ongoing story. I think that the book of Acts is an open-ended book. I think that the Holy Spirit has written many, many other chapters since the days of Paul, working through the church of Jesus Christ around the world up until the present day. And I'm convinced that each one of our lives is contributing to this heavenly book of Acts that God, no doubt in heaven, has all these succeeding chapters throughout the church age written in his book somewhere up there in heaven. And you and I are a part of it. And I wonder how interesting and compelling my life and ministry is going to be in that book. And maybe you feel the same way. So we just need to trust the Lord and ask him to guide us and use us in whatever way he can that our contribution to the history of Jesus' church on the earth will be something that we can say, look, I did my best. I fought the good fight. I finished my race. And that's all we can say. Whatever God has given us to do, that we just do it faithfully and finish the work, right? So Luke begins, the former account, again, the gospel according to Luke, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The last chapter in Luke's gospel deals with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It starts off with the resurrection that morning, takes us then into the afternoon where Jesus appeared to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus and basically closes out that evening where Jesus told his disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem until the Father gave the Holy Spirit to them. 
Luke, wanting to now continue the story, picks it up with the resurrection and deals a little bit more with the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus. He tells us that for 40 days after Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to various disciples here and there, sometimes just one, sometimes several, sometimes large groups. And he did so for 40 days. Now, Luke tells us that this provided infallible proofs to the resurrection. The Greek is unmistakable, irrefutable evidence. You see, our whole system of jurisprudence is based on eyewitness testimony. If you can find somebody who was eyewitness to an event or a crime, and you bring that person into court, and they testify that they saw what happened on a particular day at a particular time, well, that testimony is very powerful, isn't it? If you get two people that say, saw the same event, or three, or five, or ten, the more you get, the more credence then is lended to the fact that these people are testifying to what is, in fact, the truth. Because you have all these witnesses. And our whole system of jurisprudence is based on eyewitness testimony. Well, when Jesus rose from the dead, the first person that saw him from the dead was Mary Magdalene. That first resurrection Sunday morning. Then he appeared to the other women who had come to the tomb early that day to finish preparing his body for burial. After them, he appeared to Peter. And then again in the afternoon, he appeared to the two disciples who were walking to Emmaus. That evening, he appeared to the ten apostles who were in the upper room. Thomas was not there. A week later, he appeared to the eleven apostles. This time, Thomas was there. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that at one point he appeared to James, and then he appeared to 500 at one time up in the Galilee. John records in chapter 21 that in the Galilee he appeared to Peter and six other apostles, and there he publicly uh, restored Peter back to ministry. We studied, we looked at John 21. And when he appeared to all these disciples here and there at different times throughout these 40 days, after his resurrection. They saw him. They ate with him. They touched him. They heard his voice. He taught them, of course. All of this proved to their hearts beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had risen from the dead, of course. It was such a powerful evidence to their heart that he is, was, in fact, raised from the dead that they began to go out and give verbal testimony. They became witnesses. And they began to go around everywhere claiming that Christ had risen from the dead. That was the cornerstone of all apostolic preaching, the resurrection. Because of it, they began to be persecuted by the Jews and then by Rome. Many of them were arrested and were threatened with death if they did not renounce their testimony in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, not one of them did. And many of them went to their deaths in a very torturous way, all holding on to the testimony that Jesus Christ had raised from the dead. We saw him. We saw him. We can't deny he rose from the dead. We saw him. John says we handled him. We touched the word of life. He was real. He ate with us. He was flesh and bone. And because they went out and began to testify, what does is a, what is a, a, an eyewitness do? They testify. Well, they began to witness that Christ had risen, and because of it, many of them were killed. And that's where the Greek word, uh, the word martyr comes from. It comes from the Greek word martyres, which is a word that means to witness. 
as they gave testimony back then it meant pretty much they were going to have to be they would be put to death and so the whole word in the Greek became synonymous with those who die for their faith a martyr but it was a very powerful thing a very powerful evidence okay that Christ had risen from the dead and they were willing to die for what they what they saw now Luke tells us that Jesus spent 40 days talking to his disciples about the kingdom now don't confuse the kingdom of God with the church some people do that the kingdom of God is the millennial kingdom the time where Jesus Christ will reign upon the earth of course when God first created the world uh, it was his world his kingdom he was the Lord over it all okay and he put Adam and Eve in charge of the earth but God was the master it was a theocracy the Lord ruled it was a kingdom of light in fact the Bible says Adam and Eve when they were created by God were clothed with light whatever that means they were not like we are today they had a body that radiated probably with the with the glory of God because God re- reflected they were re- reflecting the glory of God through their sinless perfect lives which God had created them to be well we all know the story it didn't take Satan long to take the form of a serpent he, he had already rebelled in heaven he was the most beautiful angel God ever created and put in charge of all the other angels the worship leader of heaven the Bible tells us But he wasn't happy with being number two. He wanted to be God. And so he led a revolt, and a third of the angels followed him, and they all fell and became fallen angels or demons. And at one point, Satan brings his rebellion to the earth, takes the form of a serpent, and he beguiles Eve, and she did eat from the forbidden fruit that God had commanded them not to eat from, gave to Adam. He ate, and they fell. At that moment, darkness now entered their souls. No more clothed in light. Now they fell. They were now children of darkness. And Adam didn't realize this, but when he disobeyed God and obeyed the devil, he gave the devil control of this earth. The devil became the earth's new owner and man's new master. You remember when Satan appeared to Jesus in the wilderness, tempting him. And at one point he took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time and said, all these are mine and I will give them, I can give them to whoever I choose to. I will give them to you if you will bow down and worship me. What did Jesus say? Satan, you're a liar. You don't own this world. No, Jesus did not say that because he knew that Satan was the God of this world. The devil is in control. John tells us in his first epistle that the whole world lies under the control of the devil. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were once dead in trespasses and sins, in which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. We were by nature children of wrath because we were living in a fallen world, a kingdom of darkness, And Jesus Christ came to bring the kingdom of God to the earth. Now, if the Jews would have received him as their Messiah, he would in fact have established the earthly kingdom. But of course, he knew they wouldn't. And God had already planned for that. 
So what happened was when the nation rejected him, you know, officially, there were some that had received him, though, as their Lord and Savior. They became members of the kingdom. The kingdom didn't come outwardly because the nation, for the most part, had rejected the king. But for anybody individually who received Jesus as their king into their heart, the kingdom came inwardly, invisibly. It's what the New Testament calls the mystery form of the kingdom. We as the church are members of the kingdom, even though the church on the earth is not the kingdom per se. That was a Jewish promise of a literal visible kingdom on the earth where Messiah would reign visibly from Jerusalem as king over the whole world. Now that's coming, right? That's coming. In fact, right now, God has commissioned us to go into all the world inviting anybody who wants to be a member of this kingdom to receive Christ. At that point, the kingdom comes inside their hearts because the kingdom is wherever the king sits on the throne. And if he sits on the throne of your heart, then the kingdom has come inside into you. And someday, for all of us who have invited the king into our hearts personally, individually, we will be a part of the kingdom outwardly and visibly when Jesus comes back the second time to establish his kingdom. So Jesus spent 40 days talking to them about the kingdom. You, you have to remember now, and we studied this through all four of the Gospels, from the time these, little, these, these men were just little Jewish boys, they had been taught about the kingdom. How that someday Messiah was going to come, and when he came, he was going to release the Jews from, from Gentile oppression. At that time, of course, Roman oppression. And he was going to establish a kingdom on the earth. And the Jews would be prime ministers and, and they would reign with him over the whole earth. And he would, he would actually bring a new age to the earth. No more darkness. It would be now not, no longer a time of rebellion against God. But now a time when God would be enthroned on the earth through his Messiah. And the knowledge of God would cover the earth like waters of the sea cover the earth now. And you wouldn't even have to say to your neighbor, hey, come on and know the Lord. You wouldn't have to witness because everyone would know the Lord from the least to the greatest. And you would have a kingdom of light, okay, replacing the darkness. And when Jesus came on the scene, his disciples said, this is him. This is the Messiah. If the Messiah is here, the kingdom can't be far behind. And so they were looking for him to establish the kingdom. And at first it looked really promising. But then he began to talk about loving the, their enemies. He began to talk about, you know, treating kindly those who oppress them. Not pushing themselves forward. Not seeking places of glory and, and, and authority. But be, being humble, being servants. And then he eventually began to talk about going to the cross and dying. And so the more he talked about these things, the more their kingdom hopes were getting dashed. At one point, they even thought, have we made a mistake? Could this really be the Messiah? John the Baptist thought that. When John got thrown into prison, he sent some disciples to Jesus and said, look, are you really the Messiah? Or should we look for another? And Jesus said, you go back and tell John, the dead are raised, the lame walk, the dumb speak the praises of God, the blind see. I'm doing everything the scriptures said Messiah was going to do. Just hang in there, John. You may not understand what's going on now. You will eventually. And so he went to the cross. And of course, then they hid for three days because they figured the Romans were going to get them next. 
And then suddenly, on that first resurrection Sunday morning, here he is alive again. Now, what does this revive? Not only has their joy been made full, he's alive. But what has this revived in their hearts? Kingdom. Kingdom fever. And he's been talking to them for 40 days about the kingdom. They're getting pretty excited. They're thinking, it's coming. It really is coming. And then in verse 4, it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. Now again, the night before the Lord was crucified in the upper room, we all remember the, the, the Last Supper, on that night he began to tell them that he was going away soon. And where he was going, they couldn't follow him. They had followed him for three and a half years, everywhere he went. But now he is telling them, I'm going away and you can't follow me. And sorrow began to really grip their hearts. And so he said, but look, I'm going to promise you something. I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to pray the Father, and he is going to send to you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you forever. And then after he rose from the dead, before he ascended back to his father, he said, Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, going back to that promise in the upper room. But go and wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now, again, we we are not Jewish. We are not living in that context, so we, we miss some things. But if you were Jewish and you heard who you believed to be the Messiah talking about how the Spirit was going to be poured out at one point, it would have taken you immediately back to the prophecy in Joel chapter 2. I mean, this promise was not new to Jesus. He was just repeating something that God had said many years earlier through the prophet Joel. Something that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost after the Spirit had been poured out, which we'll study in a few weeks. But in Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 28, God made a promise. He said, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that was a promise that God had given many years earlier through the prophet Joel. It was a promise that someday God was going to do a new thing And a new era would be begun on the earth, whereas God would pour his spirit out on all flesh, the whole world. Now, that's not to say that the whole world would be saved. It just simply meant that the spirit of God would be poured out into the world in a very special way. In other words, he would be working in the world in a very unique and powerful way. We call this the church age, this new era. From Pentecost to the rapture is what we call the church age, a very special time in history, which we are in right now, 
where the Spirit of God has been poured out upon the world, and the Spirit of God is with the people of this world, drawing them to Christ. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But it, was a, it would be a different thing altogether from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God put His Spirit upon certain individuals for certain periods of time for certain ministries. And if a person upon which the Holy Spirit had been poured out by God was disobedient or rebellious, the Spirit of God would leave them. That's why David prayed, you know, Lord, please don't take your, your Holy Spirit from me. Now, we can't pray that prayer in the New Covenant. Because in the upper room, Jesus said, look, when the Father pours out His Spirit, the Spirit will be with you for how long? As long as you're faithful? Forever. He will abide with you forever. So the Spirit of God is with us as the people of God forever. We don't have to pray, Lord, if I'm not uh, obedient or if I you know, get into sin or if I'm rebellious, I, I, don't, I, I don't have to pray, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He won't. He's promised us that he will not. So he's telling them, look, you need to go back to Jerusalem and wait until you receive the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit being poured out upon you. Verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, when John the Baptist was baptizing by the Jordan, he was becoming very popular. Word had gotten out that there was a prophet. After 400 years of silence, there was no prophet between Malachi and Matthew. It's called the 400 silent years. At the end of the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, God went silent. Some have said God kind of went off the air. He stopped broadcasting. And Israel was heartbroken. They were devastated. For 400 years, there was no one in Israel that said, Thus says the Lord. The word of the Lord was nowhere, except in where it had been given already in written form. But there were no prophets. And then all of a sudden, after 400 years of silence, Here's this character in the wilderness crying out, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, that created quite a stir, as you well, could well imagine. Not to mention, John was kind of an unorthodox character. I mean, out there living among the, in the desert, wearing a kind of a modified Tarzan outfit of camel hair and eating uh, locusts and wild honey. He was a colorful guy. And he was out there baptizing, preparing people to receive the, the Messiah when he came calling on people to repent. Well, word got out, crowds began to come, and the Pharisees uh, uh, and scribes eventually came as well. And in Matthew chapter 3, here they come. They want to be baptized uh, by John also. And John, well, he would not have made a good diplomat, let's put it that way. He didn't mince his words. He said, brood of vipers, you children of snakes. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said, bring forth first fruits worthy of repentance. And don't think to say among yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. He'll keep us from hell. John says, look, God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. But even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And he says here in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then here in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus talks about John baptizing with water, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, the word baptize in the Greek is a word that means to immerse. To immerse. But it doesn't imply into what? In secular Greek, the word was used in a different number of different ways. They have found some Greek uh, papyrus that had uh, the statement that uh, a certain ship sank in the sea and, and, and was now immersed in the sea. And they, the word they used was baptized. Here was a ship that had been baptized in the sea because it was immersed. Also, it was used of, of, of cloth that had been immersed into a vat of dye. It was baptized into the dye. Biblically, the word is used in a variety of ways. Here we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and then Matthew 3, that John is called a baptizer, and he baptizes into water. Jesus is also called a baptizer, who baptizes into the Holy Spirit and into fire. And to me, that's not the fire of Pentecost. That's judgment fire. You read Matthew 3, verses 11 and 12 again. He takes the righteous or the true and gathers them into his barn, the wheat, but the chaff or the unbelievers, he burns up with unquenchable fire. So he's talking about separating sheep from the goats at one point. And now Jesus Christ is going to separate the true into, his, into heaven and the false, the counterfeit, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious phonies and unbelievers, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire someday. But the word is used in different ways throughout the New Testament. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul said, we, For by one spirit we've all been baptized into one body, into the body of Christ. We've all been, at the moment of salvation, immersed or placed into the body of Christ. We are Christians. We are saved. He was talking about salvation there. And then in Luke 12, 50, Jesus said, I have a baptism that I must be baptized with. And oh, how anxious I am that it was already fulfilled. And he was talking about the cross, how he was immersed in his mission to die for the sins of the world that we might be able to go to heaven. So the word is used in a variety of ways, right? It's important for us to know that. Now, he said that John baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the very Feast of first fruits. The Feast of First Fruits took place exactly 50 days before the next Jewish feast day, the Feast of Pentecost, which took place in late spring, very early summer. He rose on the day of the Feast of First Fruits. He appeared to them over a course of 40 days, talking to them about the kingdom. Then he ascends back into heaven. How many days are left? Ten days. Those 10 days are spent in the upper room somewhere in Jerusalem praying and waiting the way the Lord said, go back and wait until you are endued with power from on high till the Spirit is poured out. So for the next 10 days after his ascension, they went back to the upper room, probably the place where they had the Passover, 
And they began to wait and to pray. And then on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we see the Spirit of God is poured out. The church is born. The church age begins. And what a dramatic difference it made in the lives of the apostles, especially Peter, as we'll see when we get there. Quite a difference. The before and after Peters, they're not the same guy. They are not the same guy. And that's what happens when the Spirit of God comes upon someone. They are turned into another person. In the Old Testament, it was spoken of of Saul, King Saul. At one point, the Spirit of God came upon him, and it says that he was changed into another man. He became a different guy. Of course, he was not faithful, so the Spirit was removed at one point. Now, again, you're Jewish. The Lord has just said, go back and wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit is poured out. Again, you're thinking, wait a minute, that sounds like Joel 2. And I know that Joel, 2, Joel chapter 2 says that the Spirit of God is poured out in preparation for the kingdom to come. So their question then in verse 6 is what? Therefore, when, he had said, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, it sounds to them like the kingdom is coming. He's just told them that not many days from this point, the Spirit is going to be poured out. Hey, that sounds like Joel. And I know that that's a prophecy that's going to take place just before the kingdom is established. Well, little did they realize that their timetable was different from God's timetable. One day is as a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is one day. They didn't realize that the Spirit would be poured out, and at least 2,000 years would, would, would pass by before the kingdom would come. We're still waiting. We're on the tail end of that 2,000-year span. But they're thinking, hey, the Spirit's getting poured out soon. The kingdom must be coming. Well, in God's timetable, yeah, a couple days, but uh, not in theirs. But he doesn't rebuke them. He does not rebuke them. But he does say in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Guys, I know you're excited about the kingdom. The kingdom is going to come. The Father will bring it in his own time. Right now, don't worry about it. It's not for you to worry about. There is work to be done. Okay? Until the kingdom comes, you've got work to do. Remember, I gave you that great commission? It's time to get about doing your Father's work. But again... He never commanded them to do anything without supplying the power to do that work. That's true for all of us who are his people. He never commands us to do a work that he is not providing the power to do that work. And so that's why he says in verse 8, But you shall receive power. The Greek word is dunamis. We get our word dynamic from this Greek word, dynamite also. But you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses, and here's how the book of Acts divides itself again. Here's the outline. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. There are three Greek prepositions that are used in the New Testament that relate to the relationship the Holy Spirit wants to have with a person, and they are ascending. It's an ascending relationship, and the three prepositions indicate that ascending relationship. Turn to John chapter 14. Again, I'm taking you back to the night before Jesus was crucified in the upper room as they were observing the Passover. 
Once again, he had told them that he was going away. They couldn't come. They couldn't follow him. They got very concerned, very upset, very anxious, fearful. And so he begins to comfort them. And he comforts them by telling them, look, I know I'm going away and I know that you can't come where I'm going. Not yet. And I know your hearts are troubled, but I want to make you this promise. I'm not going to leave you alone like an orphan. I'll pray the Father and he will send to you another helper, another comforter, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth. And when he comes, he will abide with you forever. Now look at what he says in, in verse 17. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive... Because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Those are the first two prepositions in the Greek. With you and then in you. As I said, the Spirit of God is with people today who are unbelievers, trying to draw them to Christ. He is bearing witness to their hearts that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Savior of the world, wants to be their Savior. And so he is working in people's hearts to bring them to a place of faith and commitment. He is with them. He was with these men, not in them yet, because they were not true New Testament Christians yet. Say, what were they? Were they unbelievers still? No, they were believers, but in the Old Testament sense. To be a New Testament Christian with the Spirit of God in you, you've got to believe in what? The resurrection. That's foundational. It's foundational. Did these guys believe in the resurrection? No. At this point, even though he had told them three or four times he was going to die and on the third day rise again, when it actually happened, that first resurrection Sunday morning, and, and Mary came back and said, look, he's, he's gone. The, the tomb is empty. Peter and John didn't believe. And they ran to the tomb. They didn't believe even, even on that morning until they saw him with their own eyes. So they were not New Testament believers yet. He was with them, but Jesus said, He shall be in you. He's with you, He shall be in you. Well, then in John 20, that night of His resurrection, He appeared, that first resurrection Sunday evening, He appeared to the ten apostles, minus Thomas, in the upper room. And of course, when they first saw Him come right through the walls, they were terrified, thought He was a ghost. He said, look, peace be unto you. He showed him his hands and his feet. said, look, I'm real. I'm not a ghost. All right? And then it says in verse 22, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. What has just happened? The Spirit has gone from being with them. Now He has come in them. Why? Do they believe in the resurrection? You better believe it. They're looking at the risen Christ. At this point, guys, they become officially New Testament Christians. Every New Testament Christian from that point to the present who opens their heart to Christ, the Spirit of God comes in them. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ in them, they're not Christians. They don't belong to Christ. You cannot be a Christian without having the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's just the way it is. And every evangelical agrees on that. Where we disagree, many of us, is we as 
Calvary folks, we believe that you can be a Christian and have the Holy Spirit in you, but not have the Holy Spirit yet upon you. That's the third Greek preposition. He is with you, unbelievers. He is in you, believers. And when he comes upon you, see, that's the third preposition. And that's the highest level of relationship the Spirit of God can have with a person, what he desires to have with all of us who are believers in Christ. He wants us to go to that third level where the Spirit of God is now upon us. You say, what is that? Well, I'll explain it to you. This is what's known as the empowering for service. What we call the baptism, or I should say what the scriptures call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. See, we believe that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is often a separate, subsequent work of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. There are those that believe good Christians love the Lord. Many believe that when a person receives Christ, they get the fullness of the Spirit at that moment. There is no such thing as a further work of the Spirit called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You get everything at the moment of conversion. And the proof text for that is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit, you've all been baptized into one body. So there it is, right there. Wait a minute. What did we say earlier? The word baptism can refer to different things, right? You have to determine who's the baptizer and what is the element that they're being baptized into. John baptized into water. He was a baptizer who baptized into water, right? In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit you've all been baptized into one body. Who's the baptizer there? For by one Spirit you've all been baptized. Who's the baptizer? The Spirit. What is he baptizing? Who's he baptizing? People who have received Christ. What's he baptizing us into? The body of Christ. It's talking about salvation. As I said, the moment a person gives their heart to Christ, the Spirit of God supernaturally takes them and puts them into the body of Christ. They're Christians. They're saved. When John, in Matthew 3, said... I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who's the baptizer there? Jesus. And what is he baptizing into? The Holy Spirit. See, it's a different thing. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Spirit is the baptizer, baptizing believers into the body of Christ. But here in Acts chapter 1 and in Matthew 3, Christ is the baptizer, baptizing Christians into the Holy Spirit. And it's called, that's why we call it the baptism in or with the Holy Spirit. And it's often, as we're going to see as we go through the book of Acts, a separate or a subsequent or later work of the Spirit of God in the life of a person. You can be saved, as we're going to see, but not necessarily have the Spirit of God upon you. He's in you because you're saved, but not necessarily upon you. And I hope I'm not confusing you. As we go through this, the book will show you what I'm talking about is we see illustrations of this. But the idea is this. These men had been trained and taught by Jesus for three and a half years, correct? They had walked with him. They had heard him preach the gospel numerous times, probably innumerable times. They knew the gospel backwards and forwards. They had the information. 
but they were not ready to go out and begin to preach the good news. Jesus said before he ascended back to his father, look, go back and wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit of God is poured out, until you are endued with power from on high. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. That's that preposition. Go and wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And here he says the same thing in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Spirit, Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then you shall be witnesses. Then you shall testify of the good news in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In other words, they weren't ready to go out and minister until they had received this power from on high. Now, were they saved? Yes. John 20, he breathes on them and the Spirit of God comes in them, right? Here in Acts chapter 1, the Spirit of God had not yet come upon them. So they had to wait. Now, after Pentecost, they didn't have to wait anymore. The Spirit of God came upon those who prayed, who by faith received. But we don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore and wait for the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He's been poured out. We have to receive it. But this is such a critical um, doctrine that a lot of churches just, for whatever reason, they, they don't see it or they refuse to accept it. Sure, there's a lot of craziness that's been associated with uh, the things of the Spirit, the baptism with the Spirit. There's a lot of churches that are ultra-charismatic and they've abused uh, these things and turned people off and people go to these churches and they see people jumping around and swinging from the chandeliers and doing backflips off the pews and speaking in strange languages and doing all kinds of bizarre things and falling over and God only knows what else they're doing and, and, and a lot of people have gotten turned off because of the excesses. But we don't throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater just because there's abuses. Let's go to the scriptures and find out what the Bible has said about these things and let's not cut ourselves off from these truths but let's just use them properly and biblically. I don't know about you, but I need power. I need power to serve the Lord. I mean, Jesus Christ was commissioning a group of fishermen, basically, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every person, Rome, Athens, uh, Alexandria. You mean all the, 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 the capitals of learning and, and culture and all of this? These Rubes from Galilee, the backwoods, they're going to go into all the world. How are you going to do that in your own strength? There's no way. But they weren't going to do it in their own strength. They were going to do it in his power. And that's what he wanted them to go and wait for. This is something even Jesus himself followed, this, this pattern. The Gospels tell us that Christ, from the time he was um, uh, conceived in Mary's womb, the Spirit of God was in him. He was the Son of God. We became children of God later on by adoption when we received Christ. He, the Son of God, through birth. He, he was, you know, the Son of God right from the time he was conceived in Mary's womb. The Spirit of God was in him. And for 30 years, he grew and, and matured in the Scriptures and wisdom and worked in his stepfather's carpentry shop. And then at one point, about the time he was 30 years old, he went to John the Baptist to be baptized to begin his public ministry. He was baptized by John in the Jordan River. He came up out of the water and prayed, and the Spirit of God came upon him. That took place in, in, in Luke chapter 3, where he was baptized, and the Spirit of God came upon him. 
And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he begins his public ministry officially in Nazareth with these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so on. The Spirit of God is now upon me. I can officially begin my ministry because now I've received the power. You say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus have power? He was the Son of God. Of course he did. But he didn't use his own power. He only availed himself to the power of the Spirit, the same power that's available to all of us. Otherwise, how could it be an example to us if he had power available to him that's not available to us? No, he didn't use his own power. He could have. That would have blown his mission. He had to, he had to be a man. He had to put himself under the Father's authority like any other man and use the same power the Father was making available to any other saved person, the power of the Spirit. But the thing I want to point out is that Jesus did not begin his public ministry until after the Spirit of God came upon him. And then he began by saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me and has anointed me to preach the good news. And guys, that's exactly how we need to be. We have to come and say, Father, I've looked at my life. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of power here. Not a lot of effectiveness. I mean, I, I, I've shared the gospel with people, but I don't see anybody really, you know, falling on their knees and getting saved at that moment. I mean, I just, I've just not been very effective. What you need to do is ask the Father to pour His Spirit upon you. Now, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, Look, you earthly fathers being evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, right? They asked for a, a, a piece of bread. You don't give them, what does he say, a stone? You ask, if they ask for an egg, you don't give them a scorpion or, or, or other things like that. Well, how much more so will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask Him? And in the Greek, it's fervently ask. See, And I think you come to a point as a believer. You love the Lord. You want to serve God. You want to be used by God. So you get out there and you kind of start your ball of energy. And God lets you use up all your energy. Use up all your resources. You're going to go out there and you're going to knock them dead for Jesus, right? It's figuratively speaking. And, and, <laughs> and you're going to really make your mark because you love the Lord. And you're going to go out there and preach the good news and so on and so forth. And you do that as many, many famous evangelists throughout the years, D.L. Moody being one, have done. D.L. Moody got saved and began to preach the gospel. He had a, uh, a margin of success. He started a church, had one of the largest Sunday schools in Chicago. But he never really, it, it, was, it was always a, a lot of work, a struggle. He'd preach and, and, and people would get saved, but, you know, never a lot at one time. Fifteen years passed. And one time he was uh, preaching at a certain place for a series of meetings and as he was preaching, a couple of women, one older, one younger, were sitting like in the front row with their heads bowed. They were praying. And Moody thought they were praying for the, they were praying for the people that he, he was preaching and would give the altar call. These women were praying for people to get saved. So he appreciated that. And so afterwards, one of these meetings, he went up to them and said, hey, thank you for, for praying for the people. And they said, we're not praying for the people. We're praying for you. He says, praying for me? Don't you think you should be praying for the people? And they said, well, no, you need power. And he said, I thought I had power. 
I've been saved 15 years. I've got one of the largest Sunday schools in Chicago. No, you need power. I mean, they sensed to the Holy Spirit that something was missing in Moody's life. Well, Moody, being a humble man, said, well, I'd like to know more about this. So he began to meet with them, and they began to show him from the Scripture what they were talking about. Then they began to pray. This went on for weeks. And as the weeks progressed, Moody got more and more passionate about this, more and more burdened. It got to the point where he couldn't think of anything else. He began to pray, God, if you're not going to pour your spirit upon me, just, just take me out of ministry. Just I can't go on. Around this time, the Chicago fire hit, wiped out good section of Chicago, along with Moody's church. And so he found himself going to New York trying to raise some funds, but he said, my heart was not in it. All I could think about was being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then one day, when he was walking down Wall Street of all places, suddenly the Spirit of God fell upon him. In such a powerful way, Moody said, fortunately, I was very near a place where some friends owned this two-story, I guess, flat, and he approached them, and they let Moody use the upper room for a while. He went up there and to pray, and he said, he said, the Spirit of God was so heavy upon me. He said, I, there was so much love and joy that God was pouring out of me. I honestly felt if God didn't back off a little bit, he'd kill me with the joy and the love I was feeling. Can you imagine that? Moody left there, went back to Chicago, and he said, I was preaching the same messages. Nothing had changed in my preaching in the content. The only thing that was changed was now hundreds were getting saved instead of maybe 10 or 15 hundreds. He said the work, which was a struggle, now became almost easy. As one man said who testified to this experience, without the outpouring of the Spirit on your life, even the easiest things seem hard afterward the hardest things seem easy the spirit of god just seems to be carrying you in his strength moody was not the same man and that's what i hope to communicate to you guys as we study the book of acts it's not only a wonderful historical record that gives us the bridge between the gospels and the epistles it contains the secret to the church's strength and power Tozer said, if, if we could have taken the Holy Spirit out of the work of the early church, 90% of what they did would, would have come to a stop. If we could take the Holy Spirit out of the work today, 10% of what the church is doing would come to a stop. Because today, for the most part, Christians, church leaders are not relying on this power. Many churches teach it's not even available anymore. It was only for the apostolic period. We're going to see as we come to Acts chapter 2, Peter said this promise is not only to you, it's to your children and to as many as the Lord our God will call. Have we been called by the Lord our God? Is that promise available to us? Yes. I don't believe it's passed off the scene. I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe that at the close of the first century the power was cut off. Good heavens, I need power. I need power as much as they needed power to preach the good news. And so we'll look at that as we go through this. And I thank you for your patience. I know for many of you this is familiar territory, but, you know, for others it might not be. And we need to kind of revisit this as we come to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the key verse of the whole book. 
What is the key concept? You shall receive what? Power. If you say it's no longer available, then all you're left to do is try to do your best in, this, in your own energy and strength. And that's what the church is doing. And so the church is substituting programs for power. The church is substituting gimmicks for the promise of God. And you can build big churches that way. Good heavens, I could fill this place up tomorrow. It would be no problem at all. I could just advertise free beer and pizza, and this place would be packed every Sunday. If that was the goal, to fill this place up? I mean, you know, and churches have done similar things. Come and see our pastor swallow a goldfish for every person you bring to church this Sunday. You laugh. I've seen those. I mean, give me a break. If we're going to build a church, we better do it the way God has ordained, through the power of the Spirit. Not through our own strength or gimmicks or, or anything else. Because you can build big churches. But are they really full of life and power? And will they be successful? These people, they turned their world upside down in 30 years. 30 years, this group of Christians turned their world upside down. At the end of 30 years, Paul the Apostle was able to say to one of the churches, the word of God has come to you as it has gone out into all the world. Amazing success. We need that today. Let's pray that God, as we go through this book, will give us that empowering for the work he is calling us to do in these last days.